Welcome to the Crowdfunding Podcast. The podcast for entrepreneurs, bootstrappers, visionaries, and change makers. Learn about crowdfunding tips, tricks, methods, success stories, missions, and more. Brought to you from Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and hosted by Lynn Vanderhoff, Tristan DeFelda, Radu Makofi, and Perry Krautoff. And sponsored by the Erasmus Center for Entrepreneurship. Welcome to the second episode of the Crowdfunding Podcast. We are very pleased to announce our guest speaker of today, Ronald Cleverland. In this episode, we will discuss the future of crowdfunding, starting off the podcast with an analysis of the state of crowdfunding these days. Ronald Cleverlaan is a specialist in alternative finance and one of the industry's best-known crowdfunding advocates in Europe. He's an influencer on alternative finance, regular keynote speaker on future trends in the industry, and connector in the European crowdfunding ecosystem. Moreover, he's the director of the European Centre for Alternative Finance, a member of the Global Alternative Finance Leadership Board and one of the initiators of the crowdfunding hub. In 2016, he won a prize for being in the top three of most important global influencers in the field of alternative finance. Hey Ronald, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate that you could be here with us today. Um, could you perhaps uh, briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, so thank you. Uh, uh, glad to, to join this podcast. So my name is Ronald Cleveland. Um, I'm being, I've been involved in crowdfunding for almost 14 years now. So in 2008, started with developing software for the crowdfunding industry. Um, started the first crowdfunding platforms in the Netherlands and gave a lot of presentations, talks about the development of crowdfunding first in the, in the Netherlands and later more on international scale. Um, in 2012 already, we wrote together with a few other colleagues, we wrote a, a proposal for developing a, a framework for crowdfunding in Europe, in the European, uh, for the European Commission. Uh, now, uh, in 2021, it was finally introduced also, this European framework. I guess also we will get back to that later in this podcast. Um, so after that, I founded the European Crowdfunding Network, it's the European Industry Association for, for Crowdfunding Platforms. Uh, wrote a book on crowdfunding in 2014. And after that, gave a lot of uh, international presentations on the trends and developments on crowdfunding. I moved a little bit to the academic world. Um, I'm the director of, currently I'm the director of the European Center of Alternative Finance at Utrecht University. Um, I advise and I work together with the European Commission in several European projects where crowdfunding uh, plays a very big role. Uh, and since 2019, I'm also the director or, uh, of the Stichting LKB Financiering. That's the industry association in the Netherlands for the whole alternative finance industry, where, of course, crowdfunding is a part of, an important part of, but it's only a quarter of the alternative finance industry in the Netherlands. So we have three quarter other types of alternative finance. Okay, very clear. So we've seen that you're very involved in the advocacy of alternative, alternative, alternative finance, where you just talked about. 
Uh, for, for our listeners, could you elaborate a bit on what this type of financing entails? To, to explain it simply, it's everything that a bank is not providing. So we see in the Netherlands, we have around 200 different alternative finance providers. And mainly these are organizations that are providing funding, different types of funding to startups, to scale-ups, to traditional SMEs. With it, with, and they use different types of financial products. So crowdfunding, for example, is one, and uh, you have the different types of crowdfunding, like uh, debt uh, equity, donation-based crowdfunding, but you have also organizations that are providing invoice trading, factoring, so uh, uh, working capital based on invoices. Um, we have alternative finance providers that are providing lease products, so you can provide, you can get additional uh, lease contracts uh, from them. But you also have um, uh, organizations that are just providing a loan, but are not a company themselves. So they, they set up the funds themselves. We call them direct lenders. And they will, um, based on their own risk criteria, they will provide the funding for these individual companies. And sometimes they are focusing on very small companies, like an organization like Credits is focusing on microfinancing up until 25,000 euro. But you also have organizations that are, that are focusing more on real estate, for example, and they are focusing more on the multi-million euro, euro loans. Um, and they really compete head-to-head uh, -to, -head to, to bank financing. All right. And um, can you tell us a bit more about how you first came into touch with the concept of crowdfunding? That's already, that's a good question, but it's already a long time ago. Um, in 2007, uh, or even before that, um, I was founder, of, uh, I founded an IT company. And within that company, we developed crowdsourcing software. See, we were developing online software where people were able to collaborate online, share ideas, share um, questions also about uh, how can we help a certain organization with time and energy to, uh, to, to support the organization. And at that time, we, in 2017, 2018, we got the request from one of these companies, would it also be possible to share funding, share money? So raise money for these individual projects. And the whole concept and the idea in the name of crowdfunding wasn't existing at that moment. So it was just the idea of how do we put together some money uh, for a specific project. And it really came from the nonprofit industry. So the traditional nonprofit industry at that time, but still at this time, is organized that you are donating money to an organization. So like now, you're donating money to Rio555 uh, for uh, Ukraine, um, and they will distribute it to the Red Cross and to the other organizations, and, and they will decide what kind of projects they will finance. The idea of this NGO was we just turn it around. We just have a certain number of projects that we want to uh, support, and you as a donor can decide what kind of project that you want to support. So that was really, and that started with donations. Uh, it's the second request came from Amsterdam's Fonds for the Kunst. So that's the organization that's supporting the culture, cultural and arts uh, industry in the Netherlands. And 
they said, we see a small organization in the US, it's called Kickstarter. Uh, it has an interesting model because you can, as an artist, you can raise funding for your own uh, cultural projects. Perhaps can we develop a copy of Kickstarter in the Netherlands? So there we started with reward-based crowdfunding where the, donate, the, the donor will also get a small reward. So there can be a ticket for the, for the, uh, for the project, for example, or um, a signing uh, from, uh, from anything or, or a recording, for example. At that time, they were still distributing recordings like CDs. <laughs> um, and that was how we get introduced to it. And then with my company, where we were just developing this software, we were uh, developing the, the IT software for a dozen different other crowdfunding platforms. And slowly it also moved into investments crowdfunding, like lending and equity. Um, and from that time also, we noticed that the, the, there was a need in the industry, not just for the IT, for software, but also for consultancy, how to set up these structures. And it's a press claim from traditional finance industry, uh, institutes, such as banks, uh, investment companies uh, also, uh, because they were also looking into this industry. So that's a bit of the start. And it was 2008, 2010, 11, perhaps, um, when, when this all started. Yeah, yeah. A really interesting story. So we also saw that you have some affinity with the field of entrepreneurship. What would you say is your experience with entrepreneurship in general? What do you think is the importance of entrepreneurship in our society? Oh, you're really, really well prepared. Uh, this <laughs> because this goes even this goes even way back. Uh, so my my master thesis, in fact, was on entrepreneurship. So um, in um, in 1999, I won an entrepreneurship competition in uh, at the University of Amsterdam. And that was the first entrepreneurship competition at that time uh, organized in the Netherlands, uh, where we also where you also got funding. So after you you were, um, won this competition, we got also some seed funding. Um, and based on that, also, I did my master thesis on the support of entrepreneurship at Dutch universities at that time. And I published that, I think, in 2000. And since that time, I was involved in quite a number of entrepreneurial networks to support entrepreneurs to set up their own companies, to coach startup entrepreneurs. Uh, we set up, we also launched an entrepreneurial network in Amsterdam uh, to, to share experiences because we noticed that entrepreneurs, uh, academic entrepreneurs for, uh, specifically, learn most from each other. So it's the peer learning, uh, meeting each other. So for now, now it sounds a bit silly because every entrepreneurial, every economic faculty has their own entrepreneurial course, has these startup networks or these community events but at that time nothing like that was was happening yet so there were only a few universities in uh, delft uh, and in enschede uh, they were supporting few of the technology startups but still very limited um, so at that time it was still very young and um, Parallel to it, I was starting my own IT company, so I was developing myself as an entrepreneur. And 
when I moved back to uh, uh, at, at the university, so what I'm now doing at Utrecht University, I see more and more often that there is still a huge need for uh, startups to and entrepreneurs to uh, uh, to grow their business. And one of the elements that's needed is financing, and that's of course something in the last ten years I've grew. Uh, I've developed quite a lot of experience and, uh, and knowledge about it. And so for me now, I can combine these two tracks. So for me, it's important for startups uh, and entrepreneurs to really develop their whole um, ideas and, and, and concepts and money shouldn't be the problem there. So how can you connect crowdfunding or other alternative financial financing in such a way that also for startups that have a great idea, but perhaps they don't have yet, uh, they are not uh, bankable yet, so they still have to develop their business uh, a bit further, that they're still able to raise funding from other sources and still continue working on their uh, your their ideas and, and, and on their dreams that they are want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. So crowdfunding really started off as a means to growing a, a startup, actually. Yes, and uh, because what I noticed when I was working on the crowdfunding industry in the crowdfunding industry is that I saw that it it gave the possibility for entrepreneurs that were not able to raise traditional funding from a bank or a VC, they were still able to get funding from the network because the network believes in the, believed in them. Uh, supported them and also were providing the funding uh, against favorable conditions. So either uh, cheaper loans or donations. Um, and this way, otherwise these, these ideas and these companies were not able to get started. And now with this, this support, it was for them still possible to start. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very interesting as well. Um, so I'm giving the floor to, uh, to Tristan now for the next topic. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we're speaking to the right person. Then, uh, uh we're going to zoom a bit in on uh, the current state of crowdfunding. Uh, so crowdfunding at this moment, uh, of course we, uh, we did some research when we started off this podcast and we found out that actually <clears throat> a British rock band already crowdfunded, uh, their first recording in 1997, but in Amsterdam, there was already a, uh, a, bathing and swimming facility crowdfunded near the Amsterdam River. So, of course, we're now a couple of years forward in 2022. Uh, do you think that the power of crowdfunding nowadays is already fully acknowledged? Um, normally, I would say no. Uh, and I think still, it's, uh, there's still a lot of potential left. Um, but to get back to your introduction, um, indeed, the, the rock band you mentioned, Marillion, is one of the classic examples that are being used to show the development of crowdfunding. Uh, and indeed, the, 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 the bathing facilities, uh, but also the Statue of Liberty in, in, uh, in New York, for example. These oh. are these classic examples from 100 years ago where people are already bringing together funding. Yeah. But there, there, of course, there are thousands of examples. Uh, every church is crowdfunded. Uh, so it's something that is very common. And the strange uh, situation is that in the last so 20 years, we've, tr we've almost lost that momentum. So we trusted our individual money to a bank or an investment company uh, to invest on our behalf. 
And this way, this direct connection between investor and, and, and the project is lost. Um, and that's something that we see now uh, returning with crowdfunding. And so, and why is crowdfunding the last decade growing this fast, and especially the last couple of years, is because this is um, um, it's getting more visibility with online platforms, for example, with online payments infrastructure, it makes it easier to uh, to to raise the transactions and do the and do the payments uh, online. Um, and it's 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 part of the uh, it's also part of the momentum of of, of sharing uh, good stories. It's it's uh, um, the, the whole idea of, of of networking. You mentioned it in the introduction and community management. It's something that you want to introduce and use as a as a company yourself. You are not alone in society, so you always have external stakeholders. So you want to involve these stakeholders and. Uh, with storytelling and, and one element of that can also be that you want to raise some funding from them, either because you don't get the funding elsewhere, but some most of the time also because you want to have the involvement of your stakeholders um, to build a momentum and, and to build also trust with your local environment, for example. Yes. Um, so that so that's that's where it comes from. And um, the the industry now is is quite well developed. But still, it is. Um, you have to. Uh, if you look into crowdfunding, you have to uh, look into how the crowdfunding currently is structured. So, and I'm now focusing on investment crowdfunding, so either debt or equity, because in this industry, you see that there are two different reasons for uh, investors to participate in these crowdfunding campaigns. So you can always look into it from the entrepreneurial point of view also, but I'm now looking into it from the point of view of the investor. So there is a group of investors that is specifically supporting one project. So this is a family and friends uh, and external stakeholder model where an organization is reaching out to their own network, um, building up uh, a community and, and using that community to finance uh, a shop, uh, a bookstore, uh, but it can also be a, a fast-growing uh, startup. And the second group of investors are the investors that are seeing it as a uh, specific asset class where th that they can use to uh, as an investment to distribute their investments and to have a nice financial return. And it's very important to distinguish these different types of investors because the majority of the growth in the crowdfunding industry in the past five years has been in this last part uh, of this industry. So you see that crowdfunding platforms focusing on these <coughs> investors looking for a financial return are um, um, also very, uh, they're looking more like a bank. Uh, also how they, structure the deals and how they evaluate the risk of a potential investment. Uh, so that means that for a startup or an SME looking for funding, uh, it is not really new type of funding. It's just an alternative for a traditional bank loan. So you still have to pay a high interest rate. You have to provide quite a lot of collateral. Um, uh, so it's not adding up anything 
up until uh, up uh, on on top of just raising funding, while in the first category where you are raising money from your own community, the additional value of crowdfunding. So having the marketing potential, uh, have this network of ambassadors connected to your company, uh, is much more important. And to, to to complete this, so this last part, this is still really underdeveloped. So although the whole crowdfunding industry is growing really fast, uh, and a lot of people know crowdfunding, 90% of the funding comes from investors just looking for a nice financial return, uh, and for entrepreneurs just looking for funding that they don't, otherwise would have been able to raise from, from a bank. Uh, and only 10% of the funding is, is raised by companies just looking at in their uh, in the pure form of crowdfunding, where it's much more than just raising funding uh, money. It's also building up a marketing team, it's building up ambassadors, and also tapping in into the knowledge of their network. So there is still a lot of potential for, for growth. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 clear. Um, so of course, when you look at crowdfunding, the, the second kind of definition of crowdfunding you gave, or not really definition type of crowdfunding, is also the one that people think is crowdfunding. Uh, you see that a lot with people that aren't really knowledgeable in that field. Um, so when we also look at crowdfunding at the moment, we see that there's quite a shift going from national levels to international levels. And we've also seen that you're a member of different uh, advisory boards, uh, multiple industries all around the world, uh, in Europe, USA, uh, China, but also in Africa. Um, and taking into consideration that Europe and the USA overall possess more indiv uh, individualistic cultures, while China and Africa are uh, considered more collectivist. Do you notice any significant differences? Good question. Um, so what the main difference? So so the main difference is that in, for example, in Africa, you still see that there is a lot of collective uh, fundraising already done, but it's all informal. Um, so this is something that is. Uh, so while in the last twenty years we were moving away to a centralized financial industry. In these countries, uh, it was never the case. So you still have the model that also we had 30 years ago, where if you were looking for funding, you were looking to, in your own network for the, uh, for the financing. So that's still the same there. And also what we see in, um, in, in, in countries like Africa is that the crowdfunding industry is still not developed that well. So it's still a very small industry. The and most of the the most important reason is that the the regulation is not in place yet. So it's illegal to use crowdfunding uh, in these countries, okay. and that's that's a big problem. So if you look into China, China, the it has huge growth of alternative finance in the last uh, couple of years, but they also uh, in the last two years strong decline. Uh, so, and one of the reasons was that why was alternative finance growing really fast in China uh, was that the, uh, they were really focusing on peer-to-peer -peer lending, peer-to-peer -peer lending for consumer loans most of the time, peer-to-peer -peer lending for small businesses. And that was an industry where people were focusing on uh, getting quite high uh, financial returns as an investor, but also for these individuals, it was really difficult to get a, a microcredit loan from a bank, a local bank, for example. Uh, and also it was uh, 
kind of under the radar. So it wasn't visible for the for the Chinese government. The Chinese government the last two years were very uh, uh, brought down a lot of these platforms. So a lot of these platforms were illegal nowadays. So you see now um, the crowdfunding or peer-to-peer -peer lending isn't existing that much in China now because this whole financial industry is alternative finance industry is strongly regulated now. To zoom back to, to Europe for uh, in Europe, we had the same uh, situation in Europe. While in all European countries there were different regulations. So in some countries it was really illegal to use crowdfunding, specifically investment crowdfunding. So donation crowdfunding is always possible, but uh, investment crowdfunding was illegal, especially in Eastern European countries. Um, we've seen some countries like Germany and France where they and Italy where they introduced crowdfunding regulation already uh, five years ago. Uh, and we have countries like the Netherlands where we work with exemptions. So we don't have real regulation, um, but it's still allowed if you have certain exemptions. So that's the typical gedoogbeleid in, uh, in the Netherlands, where we don't want to regulate it yet, uh, and, but we also we don't make, want to make sure that it is not illegal yet. So this is a way of, uh, of managing it. And what changed now is that um, uh, last year, new European crowdfunding regulation was introduced. Uh, or two years ago it was introduced. In, in November last year it was started. And in November of this year, all crowdfunding platforms in Europe, everywhere in Europe, need to comply with these new rules. And if they comply with the new rules, it means also that they can offer the services everywhere in Europe. So now we have uh, a level playing field for all European countries. that They're all able to uh, use crowdfunding in the same way. They also have to follow the same rules, uh, so the same licenses, uh, and also investors can can invest in, in companies everywhere from Europe. Okay, and this is actually a nice bridge into the next question because you mentioned regulations a lot. Would you say those regulations slow down the growth of crowdfunding? And are there also other main hurdles that slow down the growth of crowdfunding? No, I, uh, I would argue that um, the um, lack of regulation in the Netherlands uh, have uh, slowed down the the, the growth has slowed down the growth of uh, crowdfunding in the Netherlands okay. because in the beginning it was fine if you don't have clear regulation you can experiment a lot but if you want to reach out to institutional investors or or large private investors that are interested in participating in these these crowdfunding loans you need to have a clear legal framework. So while in the beginning it helped the Dutch crowdfunding industry to grow quickly, you saw that um, the last couple of years it stalled a bit and it didn't really develop that well. And also it created a lot of uncertainty in the market um, because there are so many different crowdfunding platforms now in the Netherlands that for as a startup, as a company, it's really difficult to choose one. Now, in other countries where there was a very strong uh, crowdfunding le uh, legal framework already, it helped them to 
build a few very strong players in this uh, in this industry and this will also help these platforms for example in germany and in france to now with this european crowdfunding regulation to expand to other countries so we see now that almost all the dutch crowdfunding platforms are clearly only focusing on the dutch market and we'll see platforms from the uk platforms from france that are already operating in different countries or announce their plans to uh, to start operating uh, uh, in other countries and so that it can mean if you look forward in the next five years that can uh, there will be a couple of pan-european crowdfunding platforms either on equity or in debt and at this moment i don't see any dutch platforms taking that role so that will be dutch there will be friends so that will be uk platforms for example uh, or as few scandinavian uh, companies that are setting uh, that are working on uh, getting that pan-european player yeah okay um also again a very nice bridge into the next section where we're going to zoom more a bit into the future of crowdfunding i am going to give the word to len again Yes, yes. So indeed, um, what, what what do you think will happen in the following years in the world of crowdfunding? Are there certain trends that we should look out for, for example? So a few trends. Um, so one of them is that uh, there will be a much more closer connection between crowdfunding and European funds. So we already see that um, there are on the European level, quite a lot of, uh, of, and also on the national level, for example, a lot of these big investment funds being created. And some of them have billions of euros in, in it. The problem with these funds is that it's really difficult to distribute the funding to individual SMEs. So they are looking for distribution channels. Traditionally, that's a bank. So they will provide funding to a bank under certain conditions if they provide these uh, loans to, to SMEs. What we will see now is that crowdfunding platforms will partly take over that role. So they have the contacts with these individual plat uh, SMEs or startups. Um, and part of that funding from these European funds will be distributed through these platforms. So that's one huge trends that we will see in, uh, in the next couple of years uh, developing. It will take time because these are slowly moving processes, but we see already some examples of European funds or national funds that are setting up these co-investment vehicles uh, to, uh, to use the power of this crowdfunding industry. So that's one uh, major trend. The second one is, is consolidation. So we've, what I mentioned already, we've seen, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, we have more than five, 50 different crowdfunding platforms. Uh, perhaps 10 will survive in the end. So we'll see that a lot of these platforms will either stop or they will merge. Because of this new European law, a lot of these European uh, mergers will also, uh, also take place. So that's also perhaps already the third trend that we see a movement from national focus platforms to european focus platforms and there will always be a mix so there will be a, uh, a certain amount of platforms looking either for uh, uh, being kind of the uh, pan-european platforms it will, will, will be platforms that are focusing on a specific uh, area like the baltics or like uh, german-speaking countries uh, austria and germany for example 
uh, and still you'll still have these national platforms that are just focusing on their, their own industry. And especially for these international platforms, it can also mean that they are focusing on a, on a very specific industry, like renewable energy, like real estate, for example, because these are the growth markets now nowadays. Um, so these, these are some of the important trends and, and one other trends, uh, and perhaps that will be less visible, but mm -hmm. that's the type of community financing um, that will take place much more. So that's the, the second model I explained where you have the, the real type of crowdfunding where the investors are connected to the, to, to the startup founder or the startup company themselves. Um, that will also grow rapidly because we see more uh, bottom-up initiatives uh, coming up where people are looking for raising the funding for uh, a local energy project, for example, and they will also want to be want to participate in it. So not just be, be a member, not just only want to provide a loan, but also become a co-owner. So kind of an equity investments uh, will happen there. So that, that's that's uh, but but most because these are mostly under the radar and also uh, the, the the projects are not necessarily smaller because sometimes you also need a few million for these uh, for these projects, um, but they are less scalable on uh, on a platform. Um, so a platform like uh, like CrowdCube, um, it's much more visible that they are raising funding for a thousand different startups and they are ra they're raising a few multi-million euro uh, equity rounds. These, these are more these local projects that are taking place in the in the different uh, yeah areas <laughs> everywhere in everywhere in Europe. So. I think yeah. these are a few of the main trends that that we will see in the next couple of years yeah so you so you really think like the involvement is growing within the realm of alternative finance yes so indeed so from the, the personal involvement from the investors so mm -hmm. they just want to they want to have be more involved uh not just in they don't want to have the day-to-day -day, um, decision making process but they they want to be Co-owners, so the whole growth of cooperatives, for example, uh, will be part of that. So you see more and more in the, in the energy industry. We already see that that a lot of these these energy projects are founded as an energy cooperative. Uh, we see more and more housing cooperatives already uh, getting started. Uh, that will move into uh, more industries. Yeah, yeah, a very interesting trend. And um, coming back a bit on the first trend you mentioned. Um, do you think um, the, the middle parties, like for example, banks and the financial institutions, will they will they become um, obsolete in the far future? No. Um, so for 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 banks, there is still there, there's always banks are the um, are the institutes that are able to attract the cheapest funding. Uh, still, and uh, because they will get the money for free from the European Central Bank, um, they have the distribution channel, uh, and and so for them it's quite easy to provide cheap loans. The only problem for them is that because of the re regulations, it's really difficult to provide small loans, and it's really difficult to provide risky loans. But if there is a larger company or um, that is looking for a low risk loan, the cheapest way to do that is a bank. 
that that will always always be the same also in the next 10 years um, but what will change is that for the more riskier loans or for the smaller loans there will be alternatives that will be much more interesting for the the, the, the startups uh, or the, the the companies to look into and either that's because it's cheaper uh, but it can also be because it's much more flexible because sometimes you don't as a, as a starting company you don't want to have a five-year contract you just want to have funding for the next 12 months and then you will look into new funding so these alternative finance providers are more able to, and more capable of providing these kind of loans or or credits uh, instruments um, than the bank is able to do um, also they are able to you don't need to have a, a personal guarantee for example for the alternative finance for a bank you always need to have these personal guarantees so there, there are reasons why you want to choose for an alternative and perhaps in your next question, but already following up, because what's the role for a bank? Uh, so they will not uh, stop and they still provide their own uh, funding. But what's also possible is that they take over some of the alternative finance platforms and offer that as their own service. And that's also uh, a movement we already see in certain industries where specific alternative finance providers uh, will develop a certain uh, financial product that is interesting for uh, for a large audience. They just take over these alternative finance providers and uh, offer it on the, uh, as part of their own brand, for example. The only risk here is that some of these platforms, you've seen that already in the UK and in the US, have grown that fast that, there are not a, that, that banks are not able to take over them anymore. Um, so a lot there are large peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms in, in, in the UK and in the US that are even moving the other way. They started as, a, as an alternative finance provider and they are now applying for uh, a bank license. So they are becoming a bank. And the reason is because they, when they are a bank, they don't have to offer all these bank services, but they can also... Um, um, get get funding from uh from consumers uh mm -hmm. so and not as an investment but just as a saving product and uh, saving products are very it's very cheap money because you still get zero uh, percent uh interest on it uh so for them it's much easier if they can get that that that, that saving in their their account it's much more uh, cheaper money for them to to invest than uh, reaching out to potential investors that are still looking for three, four, five percent interest, for example. Yeah. So there will be a mix. So there will be that. That's the interesting for the next five to ten years. There will be yeah. a kind of a hybrid situation where banks and alternative finance platforms will move to each other, find each other, either merge, either buy each other. Um, and in 10 years time, we don't speak anymore about alternative finance because it's just SME finance or it's a startup finance uh, mm -hmm. because you don't even know what kind of organization is behind it. Uh, we, we all know ABN AMRO, Rabobank, ING, uh, but already in, in, in certain countries, um, in the UK, for example, uh, most of the funding for these small uh, organizations comes from uh, not the high street banks, so not, not the large banks, but they come from alternative finance providers. 
And so they create their own branding and, and, and more people know Funding Circle, for example, in the UK than HSBC, for example, as a, if they're looking for, for funding. So they have a much stronger brand in the, that will yeah. same will happen here. Uh-huh. So alternative finance will eventually become normal finance. Yes. Okay. And, and do you think like um, uh, blockchain and decentralized applications will speed up that process? No, it will not speed up the process, uh, but it will be part of the process. So we'll see what, uh, what we see now is uh, in the last five years, there were a lot of experiments with, with blockchain and uh, to see how it can support this, this, this trend. Um, but for, uh, for my, in most cases, either it's from legal le- uh, reasons or it's from technology reasons, uh, it's not possible to scale up quickly. Um, so the, the whole concept of decentralized finance or uh, uh, the, the STO or even the, the whole development of, of uh, uh, assets-based uh, financing solutions. So there, there's a lot of experimenting in that, in that area. That's, that's, that's the future of finance. Um, because you still need to have you need to have a new infrastructure in the in the future, but it's not something that will be used in the next couple of years. That will be used in ten years time, um, but most of the uh, most likely nobody will know that they are using a blockchain infrastructure or they are using a crypto assets uh, as a collateral um, because that's too technical. Uh, so we need to have a narrative that makes it easier for people to understand. And if they are just looking, you, you, the people that are using it, this now are techies that, that understand this, this idea and they have their cryptocurrencies as a collateral uh, for de- decentralized financing loans, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very complicated to, uh, as a normal user, to, to, to use it. So you still have to invest time and energy uh, in it. And that's not something that most organizations uh, and people want to do at this moment. And especially when also you want to connect it to the, the traditional finance industry, uh, it needs to mature a lot. And that will happen. And we will see some very good examples. And we see already some very good examples where it's being used now. But it takes some time before um, um, that, 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 that's mature enough. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine indeed. So um, coming back a bit to crowdfunding itself, crowdfunding can be so much more of a tool than only its financial part. So what role does crowdfunding play in creating sustainable ecosystems for ventures? Um, It can play a role, Uh, it can play also a big role. (coughs) Um, Uncertain, uh, incertain, phases of the company. Um, as a starter, uh, before a company starts, it's, uh, it helps to, indeed, not just raising the funding that is otherwise perhaps difficult for them to, to raise because these investors are looking to other reasons to invest than a traditional investor would look at. And also because some of them, um, you have different ways of asserting risk. So the easiest way to explain is that as a banker or an investment manager at a venture capital firm, you are quite far away from the startup owner. 
But if you are uh, in this ecosystem or in this network of this startup owner and you know that person for a long time already, you know their experience from, from a long time, you know that um, you can use it to de-risk your potential investment. So that's that's the technical way of looking into it. The other way is, of course, that they want to support this startup uh, founder. And it's not just the families and friends that are doing it because they like this guy or girl to, uh, to start this company. Um, but it's also because they believe in changes they make in uh, uh, because they they have this 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 shop that they want to start in the in this town uh, that will increase the, the quality of living in this uh, this area uh, or they have a sustainable solution for example so that's that's the start of this this initiative um, during this um, uh, the, the, every startup, every company has a life cycle. So you start, you have uh, hopefully a growth in your company and then it stops somehow. Either you, you, uh, um, you sell it or uh, it is liquidated or there is an end somewhere. So in the, in the between part, you can use this network of investors as ambassadors. So they can help you to promote your products you can use it as a marketing uh, network, but also you can use it to test and validate your ideas. So if you have this community of investors uh, that are really interested in your company, so not that these investors are looking just for financial return, but these investors are really looking into helping you build your company, they will coach you, they will guide you, but also they provide you introductions to, to networks that you are not have the network uh, and, and the connections yourself. So that's really valuable there. Uh, and what I also want to add there is that investors doesn't have to be external investors. These can also be your employees. So what also is a very interesting, and that's an interesting trend we've seen now more and more often, is employee ownership or co-ownership. So where your employees have a big stake in the company. And not just because um, it's just part of the, 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 uh, the just a few percent of the, uh, of, of the uh, shares are being distributed uh, amongst the 100 different employees, but really they really have uh, together uh, a substantial amount of, of stake in the company. And that's important because for commitment. It's, it's really important that research shown that they have a very good motive for the motivation and also to attract qualified uh, employees. But it also helps for the long-term ecosystem, of the startup ecosystem, because when there is an exit of a player of a company uh, and there is a sale of a company not just the investors get, get a nice financial return and not just the founder will get a nice financial return but also the employees and because yeah. the employees get additional start uh, uh, they have a nice bonus and sometimes they have a, a nice investment uh, capital it gives them the opportunity to start up their own companies themselves or to finance the companies they like to get started. And it's really important for uh, society as a whole, because what we've seen, there is a very limited group of people that has the capacity and have the funding and have the network to, to start a company. And because if you're coming from 
uh, a background with not a lot of uh, uh, potential investors. You don't have family and friends with uh, potential uh, money. You don't have your funding yourself. You are very limited in your entrepreneurial capacity. And when you have this uh, employee uh, um, entrepreneurship recycling, we call it. <laughs> so you yeah. can can restart and you can re uh, have new kind of, of startups and it cre creates this uh, a, a new ecosystem. And it has this, this proven to be very successful in other countries, like the whole, right. what we look into Silicon Valley, uh, but uh, less uh, known is, for example, in, uh, in Estonia. In Estonia, uh, the, a large group of the employees of Skype, and uh, Skype is being bought by Microsoft, uh, a large group of the employees were working in Estonia and they had a big uh, stake in the company themselves. They were getting all the, uh, after the sale to Microsoft, uh, they also got a lot of uh, investment capacity and they started their own companies and they funded new companies. And now there is a very, uh, successful startup ecosystem in Estonia uh, with certain uh, uh, unicorn companies even uh, there. So in a matter of 20 years, uh, this whole entrepreneurial recycling created a completely new startup ecosystem in Estonia. And it's just one example where that was quite, uh, uh, well, quite successful. And that's also one of the reasons that it is so important that you have your in your entrepreneurial ecosystem and your startup ecosystem is the, the whole idea of paying forward as a startup founder that if you are having successful exit that these funding are being reinvested in this ecosystem and i'm always arguing that it's very important that not just the founder of the company will be able to do that because if they get uh, 300 million uh, euro out of the out of such a deal, they will park it somewhere in the Bermudas or somewhere they don't have to pay any, and they buy a, a huge boat of 100 million, for example. Yeah. It doesn't really help the startup ecosystem. But if you have 300 employees and they all get 1 million and they all, and part of them start their own company, a part of them, they will invest in another company. It will create a new ecosystem of a few hundred new startups. And then some of them, again, will race uh, become a unicorn or 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 at least change something in the yeah. uh, in society uh, that's a really interesting development uh, to see within then, the industry then crowdfunding can help with that yeah yeah for sure for sure so so let's talk a bit more about uh, the value of alternative finance i'm gonna give tristan the words back again yeah um, because you mentioned the terms co-ownership and community ownership, are these the same or are these two different things? Um, so co-ownership is just general where there are multiple co-owners in, yeah. in an organization or a company. Uh, community ownership is where is, is it part of it where, where these are really people from their own community. And a community is still... Uh vague because that can be a local community where people are living but it can also be a community of likewise people people that are interested in the same topic okay but, okay so it's the idea of community ownership and so it you can use it uh, sometimes at the same time but i use community ownership really to express that 
these are people that are really involved in this whole process and they want to do more than just providing the, the investments and, and become a co-owner. Yeah. So they're not a silent co-owner. They really want to be joining this whole initiative. Yeah. So you've already uh, mentioned this a bit in earlier questions, but why is then community ownership important for entrepreneurship? How can, how can for example, startups then benefit from this community ownership? You already said a bit with, for example, uh, validating needs and market needs. Yeah, and uh, so validating market needs doesn't doesn't need need to be. You don't have to use community ownership for that because okay. also with reward based crowdfunding, that's also a very cool uh, good way of validating ID mm -hmm. uh, and and testing the markets. Um, it's more important if you really want to have a strong um, uh, community uh, and involvement of this community in uh, in building the organization. So what we see now is that a lot of these companies that are looking into community ownership is that they so sometimes even promote it as being a cooperative. Like we do this, we do this together. It's some, it's a movement. You can be part of it, and we all become owner of this uh, this initiative. And um, that's a stronger incentive and it's a stronger con uh, connection that people have than when they're just providing a loan and they just wait for four years uh, for, for the repayment of the, of the loan. Okay, yeah, that's clear. Um, and of course, this, uh, this podcast is made for entrepreneurs. So we want to also zoom in a bit more on the practical side of crowdfunding. Of course, we have to be careful to not make it a, too big of a buzzword or more of a theoretical uh, thing. So um, we're going to now have some practical tips for entrepreneurs. I'm going to give the word back to Len and uh, yeah, some great uh, critical topics. Yeah, yeah. So the, the image of the alternative finance world is uh, sketch, sketched very clearly by you. Um, so now somewhat more practical. Um, in one of the researches you've published, namely the National Crowdfunding Research of 2013, you found that the degree of trust that potential backers have in a certain project seems to largely influence their willingness to back the actual campaign. In what ways would you say entrepreneurs could best instill uh, uh, trust in their potential backers? Uh, yeah, it's... It doesn't have to do only with crowdfunding it's just how you build trust in general so be transparent be open um, um communicate clearly um now it's 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 about working on uh building this uh this trust is not something that will happen overnight you have to invest in it quite a lot of time so you have to what one way of doing it is starting early with uh, reaching out to potential me members in your community that are interested in participating, either as an investor or as a coach, for example. Um, uh, share also with them things that are not going right, because everybody knows that there are problems that are arise and if you share these problems also and your challenges with them um, they will help you they will think with you to find solutions and that will certainly build trust and for the long run of course uh, you have to keep up your promises so you have if you are raising funding for a specific activity spend the money to that sp uh, specific activity and explain or at least explain why you deviated from it. 
and be um, uh, yeah be, be transparent and, and and communicate that quite often so, so trust takes time to build and uh, of course it can happen already that in the last uh, before you even started your company that that you've built built trust already in your family with friends um, perhaps even in the company you worked before the people trust you because uh, because of your work ethics mm -hmm. um, that that's that's a way of building that that trust and then uh, indeed, uh, you need to have strong links to be able to convince them also to finance and to participate in your project. Yeah, yeah. So um, to, to close off this podcast, are there any more crowdfunding tips or tricks that you would want to give the audience um, for this episode? So one of the tips I always give is if you want to learn more about crowdfunding, participate in a crowdfunding campaign yourself. So try to find interesting campaigns, either on Kickstarter for, for a nice uh, reward-based crowdfunding campaign, but also for a, uh, an investment campaign. And you can, most of these platforms give you the opportunity to have a very low uh, investment tool for, for 20 euro or 100 euro to already participate in it. And it's the best way of learning how crowdfunding works uh, and also to see how other how other uh, project owners are communicating about their crowdfunding campaign. So that that's a good start uh, to use crowdfunding uh, to learn about crowdfunding. And if you want to start crowdfunding, think about before you start your crowdfunding campaign, already build this community uh, months earlier perhaps even a year earlier. So you're not going to start a crowdfunding campaign and then at that moment start building a community of potential investors. You should start as, as early as possible, mm -hmm. share your ideas, build, and that can be easy to have just a list of names or that can be a mailing list that you're building, that can be uh, uh, followers on, uh, on social media. So, that doesn't really matter. It's it's kind of network building, and because when you have that network, it makes it easier to share your story. And if you're easy to share your story, it's easier later on also to to ask for investments. Yeah, and, yeah. And if you are at that moment for investments, think about this as a three layer model. That's very important. So if you're you're starting your crowdfunding campaign, start small. So start with this strong network, this strong community that you've built, because these are people that you can reach out individually. So ask them one-on-one, -on -one, so either in a call or you're just physically, you're, you're visiting them, this is my proposal, this is something that, uh, this is my pitch, this is uh, the, the, the money that I'm looking for, are you interested in participating? You can even just write it down. So it doesn't have to be uh, an online platform already, but you have to write it down. And if you've done that with 10 or 20 of your strongest contacts, where you think, okay, this is the biggest potential for them to invest, and you've raised up to, uh, and, and, and on, on your list, you have 20 to 30% of your, your funding uh, raised, only then really start your crowdfunding campaign. Because otherwise you have to change your bridge or you have to reduce your target amount perhaps yeah. because the money will not come in uh, automatically. You really have to work hard for it. So, and if you have done this, this, this pre-phase, then you really can start this, this three-phase uh, 
So in fact, there are four phases, but then you really can start a three-phase model. That means that you reach out to all the people that you can reach out one-on-one, -on -one, that you can really get to, and ask them to invest. So you have your platform, you have your campaign ready, and really to invest in the platform. Then you see you reach the 30% mark, for example. At that moment, you are starting your larger campaign. So then you're reaching out to your complete community. So you're sending out your newsletter. So one too many. You're sending out tweets. You're sending out your uh, LinkedIn messages, whatever. So for a large public. But the conversion rate already there is really low. It's something that you have to expect that even if you reach out to 1,000 people and you're sending a lot of messages, only a dozen of them perhaps will invest. And only then, after that, you finish that second phase, and perhaps you raise up to 50%, 60%, or hopefully a bit more, then you're reaching out to mass media. So then you're reaching out to newspapers, and, and you're trying to fit, trying to get uh, a new uh, nice, nice article uh, somewhere. Mm -hmm. main, the main reason is if you turn it around, you're you start with this mass media communication campaign that people will come to your website that don't know you, haven't heard about your project at all and see you only raised 3% of the funding, they will leave and will never come back. Yeah. And so people will join if they see it's already up and running and it's quite successful, uh, then they will participate. But if this, it's, it's still quite in the early stages, uh, they will not trust it. So then you're getting back mm -hmm. to the trust factor. So the trust yeah. factor is also introduced because so many people already participated. Then they trust it and they will join. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good tip. So you should make sure that the conversion rate like decreases over time instead of starting with uh, mass media. Yes, indeed. All right. Very clear. Yeah. On that note, I think this has been a gold mine for uh, for people interested in crowdfunding. Um, thank you so much, Ronald. I think you had uh, some really great answers. Thank you for listening to the Crowdfunding Podcast by Lynn Vanderhoff, Tristan DeFelda, Radu Makafai, and Perry Krautoff. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a comment, and if you learned something, share it with others on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. For more episodes, check our YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. Until next time at the Crowdfunding Podcast.